Father, you are worthy to be praised with every thought we think and with every deed. And we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would open our eyes as we've sung, that you would help us to taste heaven's joys in your word, that Christ would be to us endless hope and peace, even more hope this morning, and even greater peace. May we know it, all of it, from Christ and through him. And Father, as we consider this morning your word about how a church can go wrong, sober us by it, alarm us by it, open our eyes to our own frailty and our need for your guidance and your ever-watchful care. Make us dependent as we have prayed. We need you every hour. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We'll be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm asked quite a bit recently about my hobbies, and one of my hobbies is watching YouTube videos of things that are interesting to me. Uh, Sometimes with my kids, uh, keyword things that are interesting to me. Not them. Uh, try, to, try to make it work between us. Uh, lately, there's been an aquatic theme. Octopuses have been all the rage in the evening around the phone. Another theme that recurs over time is ships. Another water theme. Defense technology in ships. I could watch documentaries on that stuff all day long. It fascinates me. They used to have to make the decks of aircraft carriers strong enough to withstand bombs that a plane might drop. Well, these days, no plane will get near an aircraft carrier. Radar and missile defense systems keep them away. And then the aircraft that are on the decks have evolved. What they can do, how they take off, where they're kept. What is equally amazing to me is how great ships sink. They either get hit by something, a torpedo or a storm, or they hit something. However it happens, there's a simple principle when it comes to great ships not sinking. Keep the water out of the boat. A boat takes on water, and it's a compromised boat. And it doesn't matter what it can shoot down if it is going down. A boat that brings life across an ocean when it is compromised, will bring death under the ocean. Well, today we open up the third letter in a series of seven letters that Jesus gave through the Apostle John in a vision to seven separate churches in the first century. This letter is to the church at Pergamum, a church with, shall we say, a state-of-the-art missile defense system, but a church that slowly is taking on water. And Jesus sounds the alarm. Let's read together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things 
against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, we have five obscure names of people or places in this text. Then something about food that was part of idol sacrifices, something about manna, something about a white stone. What hath this letter to do with doing church at Old Spartanburg in Hudson in 2017? Oh, plenty. Last week, we read the letter to the church at Smyrna, a church with an outside threat, an acute threat of persecution. This church has been there and done that. They've already seen one of their own killed. Jesus' concern here is for a threat from the inside, brought about by the pressure of that outside threat, but now a pressure from the inside and that of what we might call compromise. And we need this because we have this vulnerability. Like the church at Pergamum, we can be tempted to trust our own strengths to the neglect of our weaknesses, our past to the neglect of our future. And like the Christians in the church at Pergamum, you and I can get creative in trying to figure out how to avoid the shame of the things that we believe in order to make God's word and enjoying the enjoyments of this world hold hands together nicely and compatibly. And like Christians in the church of Pergamum, you and I can fall prey to good-sounding but false teaching. As we've done with each of the letters so far, we'll do again. We'll begin in the city where the church lives to whom this letter is written. So let's start by going to Pergamum together, exploring a seductive city. Verse 12. When you think of cities in America, in one sense, they're all alike. The, street, the streets work the same way. The politics will fall along the same or similar lines. The religious mood is similar enough, at least to an outsider, our cities would seem more or less alike. And yet, up close, we know that Boston is different from L.A., is different from Seattle, is different from Greenville. Well, churches in each of these places where Jesus writes, and each church in any place, may share a number of things in common. And yet, there may be unique pressures to a particular environment. So, we'll hear similar themes in the background of each of these cities. And yet, each church may have its own emphasis, its particular pressures. Sometimes, it's the same pressure other churches feel. The heat is turned up on that particular church, though. Well, something is turned up in Pergamum. Jesus calls it the throne of Satan, to which I want to say, Jesus, this is not how we talk about our city. 
Now remember his audience, his readership. This is not a Facebook ad. To those who live in the city that is the throne of Satan, come to our church at 9.30 a.m. at Hudson and Old Spartanburg. No, Jesus is addressing churches in high-intensity trial in oppressive Roman cities. He is writing for particular readers with a particular agenda. This is an apocalyptic vision where all kinds of sharp and provocative language is used. And he is pulling back the curtain on what's really going on for his readers on the ground in a difficult place. Now, why would he call Pergamum specifically the throne of Satan? I mean, Smyrna sounded like the throne of Satan last week. He has to tell Christians there to be faithful unto death. Caesar is worshipped there. He was worshipped here as well. A couple reasons. First, you might be familiar with medical symbolism, which includes a serpent or a snake. That goes back to Pergamum. This was the center for the worship of the God of healing, whose emblem was a serpent. If you were sick, you could go to the temple of this God in this city, and you could sleep there overnight. And there were tame snakes there. And if while you were sleeping, you were touched by one of these tamed snakes, you could be healed. But of course, Christians knew better and would think of something else in association with snakes. And in this way, this city could be called the throne of Satan. There's another way. Pergamum was also the center for the worship of Greek gods and for Zeus in particular. A world-famous altar to Zeus was set on a high hill just beyond this uh, city. A giant platform with ornate statues visible from the city burning constantly with sacrifices to Zeus. And in this way, it could be said that this was the throne of Satan, a hot spot for worship to Greek false gods. But Pergamum was the center of another form of worship, the form of the worship of Caesar, Rome's emperor. She even prided herself in being called the temple sweeper. A temple sweeper. That's what Pergamum was. As a city, the sweeper of the temple of the god that is the emperor of Rome, Caesar. A humble designation, but this was not a podunk town, it was Pergamum. You see, it's precisely this humble designation that indicates just how much of a hot spot it was for Caesar worship. Everyone else was a worshiper of Caesar. Every other city worshipped Caesar. This city was his temple keeper, his temple warden. A dangerous environment for Christians was this city, more so than Smyrna last week. So take all of the threat and seriousness that Caesar worship of this nature would bring on Christians and turn the dial up just a bit. Add to all of this that Pergamum was a capital city, and capitals have a certain air about them. Um, Dubai is one thing with its deep pockets and its tall buildings. But it's no London, no London with its history, the center of culture, a capital. Well, Pergamum was the capital of the province of Asia signed by Rome and had been for hundreds of years by the time John is writing this letter. And it's in this city that John says Satan dwells, his throne is there. His seductive lies in Pergamum are particularly strong. And it's in this city where Jesus has his people. It's in this city where the church dwells. Jesus' people in Satan's city. 
Oh, if Jesus would just show them one facet of his person, what would he show them? Now remember, when we began the series, we took a long exposure look at a vision of Jesus Christ in all of his majesty. And there were a variety of images used to describe Jesus in this vision. And one of them was that of a sword. What do they need to see most? Verse 12, seeing Jesus' sword. Seeing Jesus' sword. To his people under the seductive pull of Satan's lies, here is Jesus with a sword. And what kind is it? It's sharp and it has two edges. It gets its job done. Where is the sword? Well, the text here doesn't tell us, but in the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, the sword is coming out of his mouth. It's the sword of his word. And why is it sharp? Well, the imagery of a sword here is here on purpose. In chapter 19, Jesus returns with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations and put down all opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus' sword is a sword of judgment. In other words, here is Christ, uncompromising truth and uncompromising justice, stronger than Caesar and a needed assurance. That's what Jesus shows this little church in this awfully big and seductive place. Now, verses 13 through 16, Jesus speaks. He speaks, hearing Jesus' words on faithfulness and falsehoods. Hearing Jesus' words on faithfulness and falsehoods. Jesus has encouraging words here, commendations, and he has tough words, words of critique. This is by far where most of our sermon will be spent this morning. First, let's work, look at Jesus' words of faithfulness. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, he begins. To be honest, when I first read that, it sounded like a critique to me. It just sounded like a really bad place to live. Come on, guys. You're dwelling where Satan's throne is. That's not very wise. But this is not the start of a correction, but a commendation. They lived in the city where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, because that's where they lived. That's where they were saved. That's where they heard the gospel. They did not become Christians and run to a physical or virtual island just for Christians. They stayed right where they were, in the city where they lived, in the neighborhoods where they live, next to the neighbors that they shared, right where Jesus wanted them. And there, in that city, they were present, and they were gathering, and they were singing, and praying, and teaching, and spreading the gospel, which is why you have a church there. The gospel of a God who really heals, the gospel of a God whose sacrifice is once for all, not made on a rock above the city continually, but once for all on Calvary, on a cross. The gospel of a king whose rule is greater than Caesar, of a city which is greater than Pergamum, and an empire which is greater than Rome. This was a little band of outcasts. 
however gentle they may have been, their message was a threat. They were present enough to be noticed for not worshiping Caesar, and they were present enough to draw the attention of those who wanted them put down, the authorities, even one of them to be killed. And in all of it, in all of it, this little band of Christians held fast to the name of Jesus. And here Jesus commends them for not compromising on his name. Did you hear that? Jesus, with words, speaks to this church and he commends them. He commends them, which must have been wonderful encouragement to their ears. And if we listen carefully, there's more encouragement than that still. For the church held fast to Jesus' name. But Jesus knows the name of the one who held fast unto death. Did you see that? And so as you hold fast to Christ's name in your trouble and account, hear this. Jesus knows your name. Do you have a loved one or a son or a daughter on the mission field in harm's way? Some of you do. And you may wonder and worry about them and entrust them to the Lord. Be encouraged. Jesus knows their name. He's there. Satan may have a stronghold on our own city, but Jesus has a stronger hold on us, and so we hold fast to his name. What a beautiful commendation Jesus offers to this church that has done such a good job. So we've heard Jesus' words on faithfulness. Now, Jesus' words on falsehoods. And this is where it begins to hurt. Jesus' sword, you see, it defends us, and so it is a comfort for that reason. But it also cuts us. And the entire letter here is bookended with references to Jesus' sword. It is as though a sword hangs over the whole of the letter. And it is a comfort. It is also a threat, as we'll see. In tough love, Jesus sounds the alarm for a church that can shoot down anything but is taking on water. So they've held fast against threat from the outside, but there's a problem from the inside. There's a problem from the inside. How serious is it? Well, it's serious enough that Jesus would say, I have something against you. When Jesus says he has something against you, it's a serious threat. What kind of threat is it? Well, it's a threat of teaching. Remember that the church rises and falls on what we believe together. And we believe what we believe because we teach what we teach. He says twice. Some are hold the teaching. Some hold the teaching. That's the crucial issue here. Some of you were pretty up in my grill before I got here on a few topics. That's okay. Uh, Geneva's question was my favorite. Geneva Anderson. I would not describe her as having been up in my grill, though. She just asked a sweet question, and the best one, by the way. She said, you mentioned the Trinity in one of your answers to the questions at the Q&A. Would you be able to explain to me your understanding of the Trinity? I said, praise God for that question. And in a few minutes, I attempted, with a measure of precision theologically, to explain the Trinity 
which at some level is always a mystery to us, but represented scripture. She was blessed for it, rejoiced in it, and we moved on to other topics. Praise God for that question, that impulse. But even before my visit, the elders hit me with questionnaires, 40 questions in one. And then we had interviews with questions and questions. I did spend some time to see if I couldn't calculate something like the total number of questions that went back and forth. It would have been hundreds, folks. I'm not kidding. In phone calls, interviews, on-site stuff, and paper. Hundreds. But 40 questions, questions about repentance, faith, justification, sanctification, the sovereignty of God and salvation, God's knowledge of the future, man's depravity, the atonement, perseverance and assurance, preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the use of the Old Testament law for the Christian, hell, spiritual gifts, eschatology, and more. And more. And more. Because your elders care about guarding uh, sound doctrine. They were doing the right thing. They were honoring Titus 1.9, which says of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, positively, and also negatively rebuke those who contradict it. And what is that sound doctrine? But the very word of the gospel. At the heart of it, the very word of the gospel. Jesus Christ, God from all eternity, Come as the promised Messiah to live in the place of sinners, to die on the cross in the place of sinners as a substitute, and to rise from the grave to defeat death. Teaching matters because believing matters. If we lose these things, we lose it all. And if you're visiting today, I urge you to keep listening as you are and consider all that is at stake in what we believe. Consider how earnestly Jesus appeals to this church in the first century to teach and believe the right things. And consider how earnestly we would invite you to believe and join us in speaking and teaching the right things. And it's not just about being right. It's about being on the right side of Christ himself who lived for us and died for us and was raised for our salvation. All of eternity hangs on what is taught in the church, which is why Jesus has his sword out. He is that serious. Well, what is the scope of the problem? At least at the moment, the problem in this church is limited in its scope. He says, some hold the teaching. It's as though he is talking to a readership about some who hold the teaching. He is not talking to the church, which itself as a whole holds the teaching. There is a crack in the boat, and the water is getting in, and he's pointing at it. It's time to do something about the false teaching. Here, the problem is not rampant, but it is real, and it threatens to go viral. We get early cancer screening so we can get ahead of it. You don't take your time with cancer. You don't ignore it and hope for the best with cancer. You move and you move swiftly. We need to avoid two extremes as we think about teaching and guarding false doctrine. Assuming that false teachers are everywhere. Uh, They are surely not everywhere. He says some hold the teaching. Or assuming that false teaching is nowhere. And that's where this kind of false teaching precisely will spring up. 
the military should not shoot down every plane in the sky because they're concerned that one of them might be a terrorist hijacked plane. You'll take passenger jets down. Uh, Don't shoot everything. Be discerning. Don't cry wolf or the next generation won't hear the alarm and they'll believe everything. But be ready to shoot. Always, friends, be ready to cry wolf if there's a wolf in the flock. Two important warnings about two unbiblical extremes. Well, that's the nature of the threat. Now, the substance of the threat. What is this teaching? Well, it's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is like the teaching of Balaam. That doesn't help you? I understand. I was not helped by that when I first read it. And that's why we have teachers. So let me help. First, what is this about Balaam and Balak in the text? The story is found in the book of Numbers. Don't turn there. It goes like this. Balaam is a prophet of the Lord. Balak is a king of Moab. And Israel is growing in number. And Balak wants to put them down. So he calls on Balaam, who has a reputation for blessing and cursing, and appeals to him to curse Israel. Balaam knows the answer, but he doesn't give a straightforward answer. He knows he's not to curse God's people. God will not curse his own people. But he doesn't give a straight answer to Balak for the allure of the possessions and prominence that could be his for obeying Balak and serving him are great. The Lord tells him he's not to curse, but to bless Israel. Balaam tells Balak instead that the Lord simply refused permission to curse Israel. Balak takes that to be a kind of negotiation. He needs more incentive. Balaam is not being straightforward and saying, I shall never. He's saying, "Eh, the Lord hasn't given me permission. And so he sends men to appeal to Balaam. And Balaam gives a good reply. He says this, Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Friends, that's perfect. Though you'll give me anything in this world, I cannot go beyond the command of my God to do less or more than he commands. A pitch perfect, a substance perfect response from Balaam to Balak, who is trying to manipulate him. But then he adds this dumb line. And it's subtle in narrative, but it's there. So you too, he says, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. (laughs) He's saying, now listen, I can't do any more or less than the Lord says. But if you hang out a little while, eh, we'll see. We'll see see what we can work out. (laughs) He's... It's like he wants to sleep on it for a bit and see what he can say to God to get God to change his mind or say what he needs to say. He doesn't quite want to let go of the promise that is held out before him. He's trying to make it work. God tells him not to go with the men in the morning when they wake unless they invite him to go. And the Lord knows they will not invite him to go. The men wake up in the morning and they leave without an invitation and Balak joins them. Maybe he talks himself into it. And when Balak orders him to curse Israel, Balaam can only bless Israel. Of course, 
But even after his show of God's superiority, Balaam contrives a way to make God's word work with getting the world that he wants. He thinks to himself, hmm, if I can get Israel to sin egregiously, like by worshiping idols and engaging in prostitution and sexual immorality, then God will curse his people and I can both curse the people of God and have my reward from Balak. So he talks Balak, this foreign king, into sending an army of prostitutes and women into Israel to tempt Israel to do what she should not do so that God will curse them. You tracking with me? He's worked it out. He can have both now. And so his name became shorthand for, here it is, false prophets who would lead God's people into idolatry and sexual immorality for their own gain. And we don't know more about this teaching of the Nicolaitans than this. We know that the teaching of the Nicolaitans that was on the ground in the first century that John was dealing with here is like that. And we don't need to know a whole lot more because it's around now too. Manipulating God's word to make it fit with things that we want so we can make both work. If we're careful listeners, we'll hear it. We might hear it from within our own hearts. Leading God's people into the worship of other gods, into sexual immorality. And those two often go together. Often one leads to the other. Lies leading people to forsake the Lord. In other words, some in the church were teaching that the Bible says things it doesn't say. And they were teaching that the Bible doesn't say things it says. And they were doing so in order to make God's word and the world work together. Does it sound like Satan to you? And this teaching represents compromise in the ship. Let's reflect on a few questions, related questions. How does this compromise happen in a church? Three things, as I pondered, would seem to go together to lead to this. The first factor would be structural, a weak commitment to church discipline and qualified elders. The second factor would be environmental pressures from the surrounding environment of the world in which we live. And the third factor is simply time. Or let me put it another way. If a church is not willing to do the hard work of confronting false teaching and putting out a false teacher, And if a church is not willing to appoint only biblically qualified elders to lead her in doing this, then she is vulnerable to compromise. For given the pressures of the environment, it is only a matter of time until unregenerate professing professing Christians latch onto false doctrine and lead others astray. Friends, when we think about what makes a good church, the music, the children's program, The personality of the preacher, the facilities, aren't anything compared to this. This is the most important thing you can look for. If the Lord takes you from here to another city one day, and you need to find a church, and some of those other things don't line up according to what you're used to, but you've got a church where it all lines up according to what you're used to, and you don't ask about how they appoint elders, and you don't ask about their doctrine and you don't ask about church discipline, you have missed it. You have missed what makes a church a church. 
You might accept a church that has all kinds of great radar and artillery, but it's got a giant hole in the bottom of the thing. Get your stuff in the right order. I was asked once by a gal who was visiting a church where I was pastoring, I need to ask you, pastor, can you tell me how men are made elders here? (laughs) This gal had jumped off a ship that was going down, and she knew that was the crucial question. That was going to make all the difference as to whether this church, which was a light in its community, would stay a light in its community. So keep things in the right order. Know what makes a ship sail and light burn. We can imagine how this might have happened in Pergamum specifically. Maybe the recent death of a Christian sparked a little movement of people saying, isn't this quite enough? There has to be another way. The church has a PR problem. When they're killing us, surely we're doing something wrong. And so from within the church came a teaching that you could have Christ and good standing in that particular city as well. And maybe it's that they were proud of how steadfastly they had stood to this point and they had relaxed on other things. Well, how might this happen among us? So a reflection on how this can happen, how this might have happened at Pergamum. Now, how might this happen among us? Here's a potential progression. Uh, Step number one. A popular author writes a book, a blogger launches a blog, or a singer-songwriter cuts an album. And uh, maybe they're widely loved, maybe they're lesser known, a youth speaker or a woman's blogger or someone in a niche like that. They write lots of great things and we come to trust them and love them. They understand us and they get so much so right so much of the time. We've linked to them on Facebook and everyone knows who we're for. That's step one. Step two, a crisis of cultural pressure heats up. Maybe it's a Supreme Court case. Maybe there's a national tragedy. And everyone is forced to say something. Christians are caught flat-footed, not quite sure what to say. And honestly, some of our forebears or churches across town have said the wrong things or they've said the right things the wrong way. And so not only are we having to answer the question of the moment, but we're having to answer for other people's answers at other times or in other places. And we need some help. We're tongue-tied. Step three, one of our more public leaders picks up the pen to provide an answer into the need. And while many writers and bloggers or singers-songwriters remain faithful, there are some with creative new answers. Or maybe they don't have answers, they just have lots of provocative questions which, which seem to suggest that the Bible's answers, or the traditional way that Christians have answered something is off. And in some cases, they might be on to something. In some cases, they may outright, although indirectly, deny the truth of Scripture. It begins unintentionally enough, often from a good motive, um, but there's a drift that happens. The bandwagon grows. The train is off. However it works, we find out their true God is really the God of the world. The God in the moment where we live, in the place where we live, the God of often individual autonomy, the one who parades in words like choice or consent, the God who approves of any and every sexual act and who even lets us declare what is not, what is. That's the big one. 
autonomy in words like choice and consent. That's the big one where we live. And the state is committed to enforcing her worship. And now step four. However quietly, a few folks in the church, even influential folks, are intrigued. They begin meeting and talking and sharing links and meeting and talking and sharing links. And this is where qualified elders make a difference. This is where it matters whether we let only converts into membership makes a difference. This is where it matters whether we believe the things that we believe, whether they really make us who we are or not. And I thank God that this church, we have demonstrated fortitude in these things, in these particular times, not just in the past, but in the present. In years past, our elders have put together statements to make explicit what we believe about human sexuality. And we all, you all, have affirmed those statements. Praise the Lord for that. Before coming here, one of you whom I spoke with at a shepherding group this last week said you listened to everything that I had preached in this seminar that I gave on marriage to make sure that I was faithful. Praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some of us here who would buckle if pressed and time will tell. Someone who wants to keep Christianity and their standing in the, in the church, but also wants to keep their job and standing in the community. Often both work. Most often both should work together. But sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they don't work. We've said that every church is not equally guilty of every issue that we see on the pages of Jesus' letter. We could think of these seven letters as like seven dials and every church is somewhere on the dial and every person in every church is pulling the dial in one direction or another. I don't think of Heritage Bible Church as doctrinally or morally permissive in spirit. Uh, We might even chuckle at the thought, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you aren't doctrinally or morally permissive. Pulling the dial, if you could, yanking the dial to a different place. So just for you, have you been flirting with false doctrine? Some version of interpretation that lets you do what you want with your body as an example? And to you, Jesus says, repent. Repent. Have you a friend who is flirting with false doctrine? You've watched him or her drift Their posts on Facebook have become a little cynical and then more cynical. And then there was that link. And then that link. And now it appears they're almost gone. You haven't talked with them in a while. But they go to our church. Repent of allowing your brother or sister to hold some teaching like this. Repent of downplaying the incompatibility of the God of this world and the God of the world. God of the word. Repent of not valuing Jesus more than this world. Jesus who did not value this world's riches or approval, but who suffered this world's rejection for you. Repent of not loving the world enough to preserve a clear picture of Christ and sound doctrine, which is their only hope for salvation. Remember, as we've said in this series, we guard sound doctrine in order to spread the gospel. Repent of confusing the world about the words of Jesus and his worth. 
Repent of telling yourself unity is more important than truth and instead pursue unity in the truth. Repent of not reading your Bible, which is the reason so often that false teaching becomes so attractive. And repent, here's a practical one, of not asking your elder about what you should make of this or that book (laughs) or this or that interview or this or that author. We'll carefully seek to understand and to help shepherd you in it. And this isn't just for those who are flirting with false teaching. It's for all of us, for we are accountable for what the rest of us believes and teaches. It is not just my job or the elder's job. Us elders and pastors emerge from within the congregation, all of us whom are responsible for guarding against false doctrine. So that's your job description. Keep track of each other and repent if you haven't. And what happens if we don't? What happens in a church that drifts like this? Some false teaching is allowed and we don't repent. Well, Jesus tells what will happen. Verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will judge. It's interesting. The letter that we'll look at next week is a church that didn't do anything about the water coming in. The church after that is dead. There's a progression. But this is not what Jesus wants primarily to do. And that's why he writes, which is why he doesn't just give a threat for disobedience, but a promise for obedience. Look at verse 17, and now the fourth part of our sermon, trusting Jesus' promise of satisfaction. Trusting Jesus' promise of satisfaction. Two promises here. Two promises for the power to endure in a city that is seductive, for strength against compromise in a seductive city. He writes, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And doesn't that sound good? Probably not. Because you don't know what it means. It's a little weird When you read these letters, the imagery on top of each other doesn't all seem to hang on together. It's almost like he was grabbing from a bucket of images and throwing stuff in a letter. But of course, it is never that way. So reflection is needed. Manna, which is bread. Jesus said that he is the living bread come down from heaven. In the background, the manna or the bread from heaven that God fed to his people. Jesus is the sustenance of your soul, and he will give you manna. A white stone could be a number of things. White, of course, represents the purity and righteousness. There's a day coming when we won't have to labor to believe the right things and live the right way. We'll have a white stone and be perfect. But then this, the buildings in Pergamum were pink granite, but in the rubble we've found Little white stones that were imported, hard to find, and incredible in value. And they had inscriptions on them. Jesus will give you a white stone. White for purity and for prestige. And a name on it. And the whole thing about a name which only the one who receives it will know. I don't really understand. 
It's either a name that you get personally from Jesus that only you'll know, or as the idea of a new name occurs over and over in the Old Testament prophets and in the book of Revelation, it could be the new name of the new city, God's people, the new Jerusalem, in which case only God's people know it. It's my best guess. But there's a feature to both gifts that we should not miss, and maybe this will help us get the point. Secrecy or intimacy. It's hidden manna. It's a name that only the receiver knows. Interesting. What's attractive about false teaching? Well, it makes promises. The teaching is, for one reason or another, attractive and new and special. False teaching is like the shell of a race car. It looks great, but there's nothing in it. And you can take a photo of yourself in front of the thing, in front of the grocery store. You can walk up to it and get in, but it can't race. It can't move. It can't go. Jesus' word, the manna that he gives, is the real thing that will really satisfy. And his stone is for real prestige in a real city with a real king. Here's what these gifts mean, I think. Jesus is promising to us perfect satisfaction. Satisfaction of the very needs that make false teaching with the promises that false teaching holds out attractive. A need for a sure word now and intimacy now. These gifts are special, they are personal, they're worth waiting for, and they are Christ himself. The sword of judgment is bred for us if we Hold fast if we conquer. The reward for not succumbing to temporary satisfactions is eternal satisfaction. The reward for keeping Jesus' word now is Jesus' eternal word, even his eternal presence as the word of God forever. And so the secret to the church's uncompromised purity now is not a preoccupation with the idea of compromise. It is rather holding out for the uncompromising satisfaction of Christ in the age to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouraging word, and we pray for encouragement in it. Although there are sharp words here, Jesus wants us to hear a kind of provisional well done for faithfulness demonstrated. And there is plenty of that in this place with this people. And Father, we thank you for Jesus' commendation and encouragement to keep on and to hold fast even unto death for he knows our name. But Father, we pray that we would not grow lazy or unalert so that water gets in the boat and we allow false teaching that opposes Christ and draws some into the worship of other gods and into sexual immorality. Oh, this can happen and it is a repeated pattern. May it never happen here. May we be a ship that defends the gospel vigorously, 
from without and from within so that we may carry life, eternal life to those who need it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.